0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I want to <laughs> appreciate you. want to thank Miss Aiden for reading God's word this morning for us. Uh, can we give it up for her one more time? I remember one of the the first times uh, my father, who was one of the elders at the church I grew up in, had me read God's word, and I messed it up mightily. Um, and so to see Aiden come up and fight whatever nerves that she may have, and, and read God's word so beautifully, I think it's a it's a wonderful thing. So thank you, Aiden, for reading God's word. I want to give thanks to Pastor Babatunde for leading us so well in our service and praise, uh, or giving God praise for our worship team who leads us so well in song. Also, want to thank the the folks that work behind the scenes, those up in the booth that we rarely see these days, but who do their job faithfully, who show up every morning early uh, to the point where we often take them for granted, but we actually benefit from their labors every single Sunday. So thank you for those up in the booth and for how hard you guys work. Uh, And with that, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll we'll get right into this. Sovereign Lord, indeed, we are a blessed people to be able to call you our God. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather together each and every Sunday as we do here um, without fear, um, yeah, without worry, just being able to come and openly pray and sing and preach your word. Father, it is a blessing uh, to be a member of this church. And now, Father God, as we turn to hear a word from you, um, I have studied, Lord God, but I need your strength. I have prepared but I ask that you would make me able to preach your word with clarity, with conviction, with insight. Father, I ask that if there's anyone here who has never called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, we ask that before they leave this service today, that in your sovereignty, you would take the scales off their eyes, that you would open their hearts, that they would see the beauty of Christ and all that he has done in their behalf and that you would save them today, Father. We ask that you would do that for many in our midst. It's in your son's name I do pray, amen. I wanna give my own word of welcome to those that are here for the first time. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Tim Ballard. I have the pleasure of serving as one of the four pastors here. And if you are here for the first time, you have joined us for a summer series that we're doing on prayer. Uh, We started at the beginning of the summer, I believe, when we were almost done. I think we only have maybe one or two more left. Uh, We've had brothers come here and preach about praying for laborers, praying for missions, Um, and last week our brother Nelson preached to us about the prayer of faith from James 5. Um, And so usually on a Sunday after uh, service, after we greet and and fellowship outside, uh, the Ballard family, we like to do what we call a sermon review, something we stole from Vernon, who used to do that a long time ago. So we do our own little family sermon review Uh, Usually it's just either more of myself asking each other and then asking the kids as well uh, what they learned in service, what they liked about uh, the sermon, maybe what they didn't like, things they've learned, and any questions that they have. And so we try to do that every Sunday. We don't do it perfectly, uh, but we do try to do it on most Sundays. And so last Sunday on the way to lunch, I decided to kick off the sermon review in the van. And as I was doing that, I was reminded of one of the... One of the many reasons why I love my wife, and there are many. She's a very beautiful young lady, very wise young lady. But during that sermon review, I was reminded of how wonderful she is because she's not afraid to ask tough questions about God's word. And so last week during the sermon review in the van, as we were talking about James 5 and everything that was preached, she asked a very, very important question about James five fifteen, And I'll just read that for us. In the prayer of faith, again, uh, James is speaking about the prayer that the elders of the church offered, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And the question my beautiful, wonderful, wise wife had is what happens when that doesn't happen? When the prayers of the elders go up on behalf of a sick person, but that sick person is not healed. How do we understand when that happens? So I think she may have been thinking about a good friend of hers who died some years ago. Then I immediately started thinking of my own mother, uh, where the prayers of this church prayed for her. The prayers went up from the elders of her own church. And yet my mother, she wasn't healed the way that we were praying. And so my, my wife is a smart cook. And she understands when Nelson came and spoke to us about how in this life or the next, someone is always healed. But if we're honest, the way that we usually pray that prayer is that God would heal them now on this side of heaven, on this side of glory. And what we've seen in our own lives, and you may have seen the same thing, is that doesn't always happen. So how do we understand that? How do we understand when we pray to God a certain way that we see in James 5, and it's not done the way that we see in James 5, that they aren't raised up to health? And so the easy answer that I gave my wife was it's God's sovereignty. But I told her if she could wait one more week, I'd preach a whole sermon just for her. And so this morning, I want just not my wonderful wife, but I want all of us to know that behind every command of prayer in the Bible is God's sovereignty. Behind every time you or I pray, whenever we make a request to God to change our circumstances, to heal our body, to give us a job, behind every one of those requests, that the sovereign God of this world answers with a no or a yes or not yet, are his sovereign purposes for your life and mine? And so what I want to see this morning is that as we wrestle with that question that Maura had, is that I want us to step through 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, and as we do that, I want us to answer and ask one simple question. What is the role of God's sovereignty in my prayer life? And as we do that, I think what we'll see is that in verse 7, Paul first sets the stage by defining God's sovereignty for us. And then as we step through verse 8, Paul is going to show us that God's sovereignty is an encouragement to my prayer life. And then as we exit verse 8, we move into 9 and 10, it is God himself that will show us that in his sovereignty, it's a comfort for my prayer life. So that one question we're gonna focus on is what is the role of God's sovereignty in my prayer life? Verse seven, Paul's gonna define God's sovereignty for us. In verse eight, Paul's gonna show us that God's sovereignty is an encouragement to my prayer life. And then again, finally, in verses nine and 10, God himself will show us that his sovereignty is a comfort to my prayer life. So allow me to read uh, what was read for us earlier one more time just to give us some context From 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses seven through 10, I'll be reading from the ESV. So if you turn there, you'll find these words. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. So, if we're to understand these verses right here in 2 Corinthians, chapter twelve, verses seven through ten, we actually need to go all the way back to chapter ten and understand the line of reasoning that the apostle is giving that flows into eleven and into twelve to the verses where we are today. So, in chapter ten, Paul starts a defense of who he is as an apostle and his ministry, knowing that there are false teachers who have come in into their midst. So in chapter 10, what Paul does, he starts to defend his ministry by letting the Corinthians know that his authority as an apostle is actually from God above. And then in chapter 11, he actually calls out those false teachers for spreading a false gospel. And then he kind of throws shade on the Corinthians for actually entertaining the false gospel that they're bringing. Then at the bottom of chapter 11, Paul switches from that to recounting his ministry of suffering that he's endured on their behalf for the gospel. He says that he's been robbed, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, and all of these things he's done for the sake of the gospel. And then in chapter 12, before the verses that we have in verse seven, Paul switches from talking about his persecutions to now actually talking about visions and revelations that God has given him. He talks about how God has taken him up to the third heaven and into paradise. And now he's seen and heard things that he cannot share with man. And then right in the middle of this boasting, as he calls it, right in the middle of this line of reasoning, Paul gives us verses seven to 10 to let us understand that God actually In giving him these visions and these revelations, he gave him a thorn in his side to keep him humble, to keep him from becoming a big-headed person. And so as we step through these verses, as Paul explains to us what God has done in his life, in doing that, Paul is actually going to show us the role that God's sovereignty plays in our prayer lives. So notice in verse 7, that keeping Paul from becoming conceited, is mentioned twice. It's mentioned at the beginning of that verse, and it's mentioned at the end of that verse. And then right there in the middle, Paul says that a thorn was given to him in his flesh. Now, there are a lot of speculations about what this thorn is. I mean, if you were to look up in any commentary, you could get between 10 and 20 speculations on what this thorn is. But God does not telling in his word, and I'm not one of those spiritual imagination people, so I'm just going to keep it exactly what Paul says. It was a thorn, and we know it's from God because we're told that it was giving to Paul for his good. And so to keep him humble, which Paul tells us God wanted to do at the beginning and the end of that verse, right there in the middle is the way that God decided to keep him humble, a thorn, a messenger from Satan. And so in this verse, looking at how Paul structures it with the purpose at the beginning and the end And the the means for God to achieve that purpose, Paul actually gives us the definition of God's sovereignty. And the easiest way to understand that is God's declared purpose achieved in God's decided way. I'll say that one more time. Right there from verse 7, Paul defines God's sovereignty as God's declared purpose achieved in the way that God decides Now, what I want us to do to make sure that we completely understand what's happening in verse 7, I want us to pull back from 2 Corinthians. I want us to survey the Bible just for a little bit to help us understand that what we observe in Paul's life in verse 7 is actually the way that the entire universe functions. The entire universe, with God as sovereign, they march to the beat of his own drum. The entire universe, the way that it functions, is according to God's purposes in the manner that he decides to bring about those purposes. So if we were to turn to Psalm 135, verse six, we read these words. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. I actually think Pastor Babatunde used that to open us in our call to worship today. And so what that verse is saying, just as Pastor Babatunde said, is that there is nothing in existence, nothing, 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 not the smallest of molecules that exist outside of God's sovereign purpose. He does whatever he pleases. Proverbs sixteen four says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So, in creation, when we go back to Genesis 1 and we look at how all the things that God has created, what this verse in Proverbs is telling us is that God purposed everything that He made. In creating everything that He created, He gave it its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. I've often heard it said before about Satan that even Satan is God's devil, even the devil cannot operate apart. From God's purposes, so we see right there from those two verses that everything—and I do mean everything—has a purpose, and that purpose is given to it by the sovereign God above. But not only does it, does God give His purposes, we're also told in sacred scripture that all of His purposes come to pass. So in Ephesians 1.11, where Paul is speaking about God's sovereignty and salvation, we read this: In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul is saying it's not just salvation, but all things, all things that exist work according to God's purposes. In Proverbs 16 verse 33, we read this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even the lottery is God's lottery every decision, every number that comes up on that screen, every time, I'm not sure y'all don't do it, but every time those other people do it, when they're scratching off those little things on their card, every scratch, it's from God. Every time, again, not us, but other people, we're playing a dice game on the corner and somebody rolls the dice. Every time that dice is rolled, the way that it lands, God's word says it comes from him. So in God's universe, there is no room for chance. There is no room for luck. Not at all. Everything that happens, happens because God's purposes, which he has given to everything, those purposes always come to pass. From something as high and mighty as salvation to something that we might consider low as in a dice game, and everything in between, everything is according to God's purposes and his purposes always come to pass. Now notice again, if we go back to second Corinthians seven, that God uses Satan to bring about his good purpose for Paul and keeping him from being conceited. So what that shows us is that God can use anything in all of creation to achieve his purposes because he owns it all. So listen to this from God's word. Um, In Job chapter 38, verses 25 to 26, as God is responding to Job and asking him a series of rhetorical questions, God shows that even nature is used for God's purposes. Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where there is no man, on the desert in which there is no man, God is showing that he uses nature, he uses rain itself to send it where he wants to for his purposes. So even nature can be used by God for his purposes, but not just that, not just Satan's messenger, not just nature, but God can use the sinful actions of man to achieve his purposes. So Genesis 50 verse 20, a verse that we're probably all familiar with where Joseph is reflecting on his brother selling him into slavery. And he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what Joseph is showing us that in God's sovereignty, even the voluntary evil actions of his brothers were at the same time God's purposes for Joseph and the people in Egypt to keep many people alive. Or how about this from Acts 2, verses 22 to 23, where Paul is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that would be God's purpose, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See what Peter's saying here? That even the crucifixion of Jesus was God's definite plan. It was his purpose that he decided to carry out through the voluntary sinful actions of men. But I think it's really important to note here that Peter blames the men for those sinful actions and not God. So even though God can use sinful actions, there is no sin in God. The sin is still the sin of the men that do it, even though they're doing it under God's sovereign plan. Now, how that works, I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea how my free voluntary actions, because I'm not a robot, how I can act. And at the same time, my actions can fulfill the very purposes of a sovereign God. I have no idea how that works. But I do know that God's word says it works that way and it sees no contradiction, that my free voluntary actions at the same time can fulfill God's holy, sovereign purposes. Both happen at the same time because the Bible says that it works that way and that it's not a contradiction. I believe it because God's word is true, even though that's somehow mysterious to me and to you as well. We know that it works that way. So as we come back to 2 Corinthians 12, God is showing us through Paul's life in verse 7 what is true of all of creation, that God is sovereign over everything. He rules it all. And as part of his sovereign rule, God declared purposes for everything that he creates. And these purposes always come to pass by the means that he desires. Even a messenger of Satan given to Paul to harass him. And so at this point, I think it's natural as we think about God's sovereignty and as we think about our prayers to ask two questions. One, if God's purposes always come to pass by the means that he decides, should we pray? And then number two, if God's purposes always come to pass in the means that he decides, do our prayers really matter? The answer to that first question, should we pray, is a resounding yes, right? So as we look through Scripture, time and time again, the Bible puts forth that God is sovereign, but we're also commanded to pray. So Philippians 4 6, we're told to be anxious about nothing, but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, we're simply told to pray without ceasing. And then in John 17, that entire chapter is a prayer by our sovereign Lord Jesus to his father in heaven. Now, if Jesus can pray, then certainly we can pray. So the Bible never allows God's sovereignty and the fact that all his purposes are achieved his way to be used as an excuse not to pray. But then number two, the answer to that second question, do our prayers matter? Do they accomplish anything? The answer to that is a resounding yes as well. The Bible teaches that God hears our prayers and that he responds to them. So in 1 Peter 3.12, we read this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the Lord is there to his children listening, waiting for us to pray to him. And then in First John 5, verses 14 through 15, John writes this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So in the same way that God decided to use Satan as a messenger or the messenger of Satan, or the actions of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery as a way to achieve his sovereign purposes, God can use our prayers in the same way. So in the same way that God's purposes are always achieved, God, his sovereignty, can use my prayers. And knowing that should be an encouragement to us to pray. I think that's exactly what we see in verse 8 of chapter 12 of Second Corinthians. This is Paul speaking, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now that this and that verse is that thorn that we just talked about in verse seven. And Paul knows that that thorn was given to him by God for a specific purpose, but he still prays. So the question is, why does he pray? Why doesn't he just sit there knowing that this is sent by God to achieve a purpose? Well, one, I think he prays because thorns hurt. Brother man's in pain. Right. So I think it's natural when you're in pain and when you're hurting to want pain relief. So he prays. But so it's not that spiritual for that second point. But number two, what Paul knows is that the same sovereign God that sent him that thorn is the same sovereign God that can take it away. And so he also knows that God listens to his prayers. So he prays. The Bible says he prays fervently. The Bible says he, he pleaded with the Lord. Not only does he plead, but the Bible says he prays specifically that the thorn that God was given would be taken away. And then it says that he prays three times, right? He probably would have gone to pray more. The only thing that stops him from praying is verse nine when God answers. So he plays fervently, he prays specifically, and then he prays repeatedly to the sovereign God that he knows can take that thorn away. So, in that way, Paul's knowledge of God's sovereignty is the only reason why his prayers matter, because he knows that God can actually make a difference. So, earlier, our sister Aiden read for us in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 30. And in those verses, we actually see another way that God's folks are praying to a sovereign God. So earlier in chapter 4, we know that Peter and John, who were preaching and doing wonderful things for the Lord, they healed a man who was lame. And because of that, they were thrown in jail because they were healing in the name of Jesus. And so before the authorities let them go, they warned them to not preach or speak anymore in the name of the Lord, and then they let them go. And then when we pick it up in verse 23, when they're released, Peter, I'm sorry, yeah, Peter and John tell their friends what happened. They tell them about the warning and we're told that immediately the friends pray. But notice how they pray. In verse 24, they address God as the sovereign Lord. So they acknowledge his sovereignty. But not only that, they acknowledge that the hostile environment that they're in is in one way a result of God's sovereign will. So again, in verse 28, we read these words that uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. So they know that God's will is working out. They know that the purpose that he has in having Christ crucified is actually working. And then they also know that Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were God's chosen vessels to carry out that plan. So in these verses, we see that God is sovereign because they call him a sovereign Lord. We see that his purposes are working. It's called his hand and his plan. And then we also see who God chooses to use. But that doesn't stop them from praying because we're also told that they pray. Knowing that God is sovereign, they pray and they ask him for boldness to continue to speak in that name. And then we're told that immediately their prayer is answered, that they are given the holy spirit and they continue to preach with boldness so again the, the knowledge of god's sovereign plan does not stop them from praying it actually encourages them to pray so with that knowing that god that god hears the I'm so sorry knowing that god hears the prayers of his children that he not only hears them but he answers them that's an encouragement to prayer the Bible is full of answered prayers, but not just the Bible. Our very lives are filled with answered prayers. So this morning, as we do most Sundays, we gather on the stage right here before service. We gather up to pray. And usually before we pray, we ask for prayer reports or praise reports, rather. I think almost every Sunday, someone is able to give a praise report of how God has answered prayer. Because he listens to the voices, to the prayers of his children, and he decides in his sovereignty to use our prayers to achieve his very purposes. So knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that he hears us, should be an encouragement for us to pray more and not less. Not to pray is disobedient, as we said earlier, knowing that the Bible commands us to pray but it's also foolish if we don't pray, knowing that God hears our prayers and responds to our prayers. So we should pray more and not less. But what does that look like for us? What I want to do is give us two broad buckets of knowing how to pray to a sovereign God. So that first bucket I call not praying with blockers. So in God's word, he has given us multiple examples of ways that he has already told us the no to our, I'm sorry, the answer to our prayer is no. So if God in his word has already told us that he's going to answer a specific prayer with a no, why would we ever want to pray that prayer? It's actually a waste of our time. I give you a perfect example of how that works. So in my house with my children, I have a rule that if they come asking for something of me, if they're whining, the answer is always no, right? So if they come, dad, the answer is no. And I will remind them, you can't come to me whining, asking for something, because the answer is immediately no. So if you want something from dad, before you come to me whining, get yourself together, go in the corner, have yourself a moment, come back to me and ask me without whining. It works the same way with God. God has already told us there are certain ways that if we ask him for something, he's already going to say no. And so in James chapter four, verses two to three, we're told that prayers from a sinful desire, the answer is already no. So in James four, two to three, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God will never answer this kind of prayer. Now, if you keep reading there, God tells them what they need to do. He tells them submit themselves to God to purify their hearts, to mourn over their sin. He tells them what they need to do before they can come to him in prayer but not just a sinful motive prayer, but also prayers from a sin-filled life. And we see that in Isaiah chapter one, verse 15. And this is where God is speaking to Judah about the ways that they have been sinning. He tells them to stop offering their sacrifices, but he also tells them he won't hear their prayers. In God's word, we read this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So I don't think God's looking for a perfection, but he's definitely looking for a life that's not dominated by sin. But just like in James, where James gives instruction on what to do instead of prayer, God does the same thing here. In the next verses, he tells him to wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So basically what he's saying is don't come to me with that sinful life. Repent, not only repent, but actually bear fruit with keeping in repentance. Get your life right, get your heart right before you come into my presence with prayer. So a a prayer offered with a sin-filled life is a prayer that God says he won't hear, which makes complete sense because not only is God sovereign, but he's also loving. And it wouldn't be loving for a sovereign God to ignore my sin problem for the sake of giving me something. That's the argument that we see in Hebrews 12. And so that loving father, that loving sovereign God that we're praying to, he wants us to first repent of our sins to get our sinful life in a state where we can come into his presence with confidence and with a clean conscience. And then uh, another way that God will never answer our prayers is a prayer offered with doubt. And we see that in James chapter one, verses five through seven. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So when we go to God in prayer, we should never doubt. We should never doubt. We should always go to him in faith, believing that he can actually provide what it is that we're asking for. And then number four, if you're not a Christian, God's word says that he will never hear your prayers. God's word says that you're an enemy with him, that you're actually at war with God and his face is against you. Again, from 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There was a a time in the conflict I think they called it a conflict or a war between Ukraine and Russia, where Putin wanted to sit down and have talks with the president of Ukraine while the war was still going. And the president of Ukraine said, I won't hear from Putin until he puts his weapons down. He's like, I will not hear from this man while he is actively engaged in a war with my country. Now, if that's how it works between nations, how much more does that work between the sovereign God? So if we are actually his enemies, if we have never come to repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, the Bible says that if I'm that person and I'm praying as a non-Christian, the Bible says he won't hear my prayers. But just like the other verses and where God has told us what we need to do before we can come into his presence, he's told us the same thing here. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a way that God has provided for those who are his enemies for those who are at war with him to be made right with him. And that's through his son, Jesus. By seeing our sin the way that God sees our sins, as evil, as desi- or, or deserving his wrath, deserving eternity in hell. So by repenting, by seeing our sins that way, and then turning from our sins in faith to believe in that what Christ has done is our behalf, by living a perfect life, By dying on the cross and suffering, by taking in his body the righteous wrath of God. By dying on the cross and then being resurrected three days later. If I believe in that and that alone for the forgiveness of my sins, then the Bible says I am now righteous in God's eyes. The Bible says I've now been reconciled to God. The Bible says I am no longer at war with God. That God is now my friend that he is my father. And we already know that he hears the prayers of his children. So if you're not a Christian today, call on the name of the Lord. That's a prayer that he will always hear and a prayer that he will always say yes to. So that's not just good for your prayer life, that's good for your soul. So do that today before you leave this place. You can tune me out if you want to, if you haven't already, you can tune me out. Take this time to get right with God, repent of your sins, and put your faith in Christ. So those are four ways that God has already told us in his sovereignty that if we pray to him, he will not listen. So then the question is, how do we pray to a sovereign God whose purposes are always achieved in the way that he desires? The simple answer is, and you probably already know this, we wanna pray according to God's will, according to his purpose. So if we were to turn to uh, John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, we would find these words. Whenever you ask in my name, I'm sorry, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, usually I think we misunderstand this verse and we have a little trouble with this verse. Uh, So usually when we pray, I think it's customary that, when we end the prayer, we normally say, in Jesus' name. I think that's learned behavior, and I think that's something that I do myself. And I don't think that's wrong, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. What Jesus has in mind when he says, ask in his name, is what John says in First John chapter 5, verse 14, which is where he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so what Jesus says, asking in his name, is the same thing that John says, asking according to his will. So when we ask anything according to God's will, in his name, the Bible says that the answer is always yes. That the sovereign God, whose purposes are always achieved, will use our very prayers to accomplish those purposes. And that, my friends, may be the biggest incentive ever to pray, knowing that if I align my prayers to the will of God, he will say yes. Why would I not want to pray according to his will, knowing that those are the prayers that he will always say yes to? So then the question is, how do I know what his will is? Well, first we start We start with what God has revealed in his word. So, we know that God wants us to be holy, right? So, we spent an entire series preaching through the book of Leviticus about God and his desire for his people to be holy. So, we should be praying for holiness. Earlier, we read from James 1:5. We know that God wants to give us wisdom. All we have to do is ask. So, we should be asking God for wisdom, unity. Earlier, I mentioned the prayer from John 17, where Jesus is praying to his father. Time and time again, through that prayer, Jesus asked his father that we would be one. He wants his church. He wants his people to be unified, to be one. We should be praying for unity. And the list goes on and on and on. So we have to realize that my prayer life improves the the more I know about God through his Word and by improve, I mean the the content of my prayers. As I align them to God's will, God has told me that he will say yes. But a lot of times, we don't know if something is specifically God's will. Should I buy that house? Should I buy that car? Should I marry that man? Should I marry that woman? God, can I have that job? A lot of times, the specific specificity, if I can say that word right, of God's will is not abundantly clear to us. And when that happens, I think we pray the way Paul prays in 2 Corinthians 12. We pray fervently. We pray specifically. We pray repeatedly in faith to a sovereign God, trusting him to use our prayers to achieve his purposes. So God's sovereignty should encourage us to pray because we understand that he can use our prayers to bless us. Now, it's important also to understand the kind of way we started out this sermon, that God's not obligated to use our prayers. Part of his sovereignty is that he gets to decide the way that he wants to achieve his purposes. So what happens when I pray and God says no? Have my prayers failed? Has God's word failed? Has he himself failed? I think it's important to realize that when God says no to our prayers, none of those things are true. But what is true is that his good purposes for my life have succeeded. And so in viewing my prayer life from this perspective, God shows us that his sovereignty is a comfort to my prayer life, even when he gives me a grace-filled no. And that's what we see in verses nine and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. One commentator put it this way, reflecting on this verse. God promised Paul in the midst of the weakness and frustration which this thorn produced, he would find God's power all the more present. Having heard such a word from God, Paul is able to boast about weakness, not because he enjoys them, but because he knows that the power of Christ rests upon him in his weakness. Or think of it this way. If Romans eight twenty eight is true, and it is, that all things are working out for my good, including God's sovereign no to my prayer, why would I want a yes? Why would I want something from my life that the sovereign God above, whose actions towards me are only good, if he doesn't want that for my life, why would I want that for my life? So I think we have to get to the point where we see our prayer life under God's sovereignty, where we understand that when we pray to His revealed will, the answer is always yes. But in those areas where a lot of our prayers fall, where we're not exactly sure, we still pray them with an open heart, trusting sovereign the sovereign God to say yes or no. But trusting that when He says no, that it's better than the yes that I wanted. So does it hurt? Of course it does. Look at the list that Paul lays out there, hardships, persecutions, insults, all those things hurt. Or for you and I, when we're praying for employment so we can pay our bills, when we're praying for cancer to leave our bodies, when we're praying for these things that seem to be good things for us and God still says no, these things hurt. And we never wanna minimize the hurt that comes with a grace-filled no. But the beauty of it is, what Paul shows us here in verses nine and 10, that with that no comes God's grace and the power of Christ himself. And with that grace and with that power comes everything I need for the journey, even though it hurts spiritually, even though it hurts mentally, even though it hurts physically. When God says no to my prayers, I can confidently stand and sing what we sung earlier, that God has never failed me yet, that he is a firm foundation the rock on who I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad to put my faith in Jesus, knowing that he has never failed me yet. So when he says no to my prayers, even though it hurts, even though I may not understand why he says no, we must trust his sovereign rule. We must trust that his sovereign purposes for my life are always good even when he says no to my prayers. So we started our time together looking at James 5.15 and looking at the question that Maura had about what happens when pastors of a church pray for someone who's sick and they're not healed the way that James 5.15 seems to imply. And I think 2 Corinthians 12 answers that question perfectly, or that question perfectly. God is sovereign. Everything in the universe, including the prayer of faith in James 5, operates under God's sovereignty, where his purposes are always carried out in the manner that he desires. So Paul shows us that the reality of God's sovereignty should be an encouragement for us to pray when trials come in our life. Whether it's a messenger from Satan to harass, whether it's a hostile ministry environment like we saw in Acts 4, whether it's cancer in my body, whether it's filling in the blank for whatever you're dealing now that you have prayed for that God may have said no, or he may have said not yet. That's the best way to understand James 5.15. And it's the best way to understand our own prayers that we offer in faith to God. But we also understand that his good purposes may come to us in the form of a sovereign grace-filled no. And if God decides that no is the best way for him to achieve his good purposes in my life, then I accept this the same way that Paul accepted his no. Knowing that God will comfort me, providing me with his grace and power for the journey that lies ahead. And with that grace and with that power, I can endure any hardship that comes. So family, let's pray more and not less knowing that our sovereign God hears our prayers and uses them for his good purposes. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, indeed you are sovereign in everything in existence exists under your sovereignty, including our prayers. Father, we thank you for your word for in it we find everything that we need for life and godliness, according to the knowledge of Christ. Father, this morning, I ask that if there are any blockers in our life, if there's any sin, if we're praying from sinful desires, Father, if we are not Christians, Father, we ask that you would so work in our lives as only a sovereign God can to remove those blockers. And then, Father, we ask that you would work to move in our hearts, that we would align our prayers to your sovereign will. And Lord God, when we're in doubt, if we're not sure if what we're praying for is in your will, if it's part of your purpose for our life, Father, we ask that we will be bold enough to pray fervently and specifically and repeatedly in faith to you, knowing that you can use our prayers. Father, will you be good to us this way, we ask. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.